Good morning. Pray with me, if you would. Lord, grant us a, a, re, a willing spirit and sustain us by your word today. Father, I thank you that you have um, wisdom and revelation for us every time we come together as a body over your word. You have things uh, to speak to each of us. Lord, you know what's going on in each of our lives. You know our struggles. You know where we need encouragement. You know where we need discipline. You know where we need your healing power. And you know that each of us every week needs to be reminded of the truth, the simple truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. So, Lord, we celebrate that today. We worship you. We come to your word uh, knowing that we have been saved not by our own works or our own righteousness, but by what Jesus Christ has done for us. So, Holy Spirit, I ask that you come and you make that gospel a reality to us this morning, that you burn it into our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. It is uh, the first Sunday of Lent, okay, so we follow the church calendar in our tradition. It's the first Sunday of Lent, so you saw some people this past week on Wednesday, they had ashes on their forehead. I didn't because I was out of town uh, on vacation in St. Petersburg for a couple of days with my family. Thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, But Lent is, of course, the 40 days that lead up to the celebration of Easter. We celebrate the joy of resurrection, uh, Jesus' victory. But the 40 days leading up to that are meant in the church calendar to be a season of repentance and heart-searching. There's meant to be fasting on kind of a regular basis. A lot of people fast on Wednesdays or Fridays. They fast a meal uh, one of those days, and I I strongly encourage that. I know that I will be um, doing that uh, because my soul needs it. But it's a great time of uh, the church season to just do heart searching over different things. And I don't know about you, but uh, I, I was you know I could say the Lord has me in a season of repentance over things, but I kind of feel like that's almost always true because I feel like when you're dealing with sin and strongholds in your life and just trying to grow and be more like Jesus. It's kind of like playing whack-a-mole. As soon as you feel like the Lord has done something and you've got one thing under control, it's like something else arises up. And there, there are all kinds of things in the Bible that, that we're called to wrestle with, the flesh, uh, the world, and the devil. But today I want to talk specifically about anger. So if you're a sermon note taker, the title is Overcoming Anger, because in the gospel we're overcomers. Amen? Um, Murray Bowen, who was a... Uh, An early 20th century psychiatrist, he speculated that over 90% of human behavior is emotional. And what he uh, meant by the word emotional, the way that he defined that was anything in our behavior that is instinctive, automatic, reactive, mindless, or defensive. And perhaps one of the most destructive emotional reactions that we experience as humans and potentially destructive is anger. Anger. So let me just tell you a story as an example of kind of the, the subtle power of anger. So this week, as I said, we went to, down to St. Petersburg for a couple of days on Monday and Tuesday uh, just to get the kids out of town and have a little mini vacation. And um, the, the way there, all the way from I-4, I don't know if it was because, what was Monday, President's Day or something like that? Or, yeah. So all the way from I-4 to 275, essentially, we were going like 25 to 30 miles an hour. I mean, like 90%. It was excruciating. So it was a three-hour drive to St. Pete. should have been two at the most. And so I was already kind of, by the time we got into St. Pete, like kind of like, 
<laughs> like I've been on I-4 for three hours, you know, with three kids in the car. They, they were good. But it was just kind of like I was already kind of on the brink of like just real, real irritation. Like anything could set me off because it's just when you're driving on I-4 for that long. So we get, but I, we get into St. Pete and I'm like, ah, oh, okay, it's just going to get better from this point on, it can only get better. So we park downtown and we're gonna go do our little family tradition of we bring a lunch and we go out in the little uh, grassy area, a little park downtown there that's by the pier and we, uh, we eat our lunch. So we're, we get out of the van and you know that takes a while with three kids and we get out of the van and we're walking, we grab all the stuff, you know, the, the bag with the food in it and everything and we're walking to this little grassy knoll to eat. And um, I noticed that when I, we get there and we lay our blanket out that I, that I, when I step on the blanket, there's some green, squishy, yucky stuff that came off my shoe that's all over the blanket. And I'm like, what in the world is that? And so I sit down and I've got this green, yucky stuff on my shoe. And it's like, it looks like avocado. I'm like, this looks like avocado. Like how in the world do I have avocado on my shoe? We just laid out the blanket, haven't got the food out yet. And so I'm kind of like, now I'm like at level two and I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. It's just avocado. It's just, now I've got to get a wipe out of the bag and clean this up. So we get the food out and we start eating and the kids decide there's these beautiful Beautiful old trees. How many of you have been down there? And these beautiful old trees with the vines hanging down that looks like they call them the tree with dreadlocks. And the kids love climbing up in those trees. So they disappear. We're kind of peacefully eating our lunch, feeding the baby. And all of a sudden, Wah! I was screaming. Some lady comes up. She goes, he fell out of the tree. And I'm like, Benji fell out of the tree. He's screaming his head off. And uh, you, you know, you would have thought he broke his leg. He was fine. He had a little scuff. But so at this point, you know, I'm kind of just like, <laughs> you know, and I wish that I could tell you that I just prayed and the Lord's peace flooded my heart and I had perfect self-control for the rest of the day. But what the Lord showed me upon reflection is that actually after that kind of buildup, the Lord showed me that like I was making a decision that I was going to be angry and I, because I wanted people to know around me that my situation was unjust. Now, I wonder how many of you can actually think back even to a moment this last week where you experienced anger. And maybe it was in traffic, maybe it was in a relationship, in a conversation with somebody, maybe it's something you saw on Facebook, maybe it was talking to your spouse or getting into an argument with your spouse. Definitely in traffic. <laughs> Definitely in traffic. But here's why this is an important topic to address. Anger is destructive, plain and simple. The Bible makes it clear anger is destructive. It destroys marriages. It destroys friendships. It creates division in the body of Christ. Um, and it actually has physically harmful effects. If you, you can read about this, scientific studies show that anger uh, has uh, effect on your heart, your vital organs, on your mind and on your brain and even in your, on your gastrointestinal system. So anger is just destructive, but most importantly, it often is a sinful stronghold in our life that needs to be dealt with, and the only power that can uproot it and overcome it is the power of the gospel, okay? And so I want to talk about today about how the gospel enables us to overcome anger, to uproot anger, and to walk in victory. But I first, what I want to do is I want to give a definition of anger, and then I want to talk for a moment about the origins of anger, a couple of manifestations of anger, and then I want to talk about how the gospel is the answer to our struggles with anger. Now, here's a definition that we can just use for today, and it's that anger is a whole person response to a perceived injustice. It's a whole person response. I mean, it's psychological, it's emotional, it's spiritual, and it's even physical. And it's a response, or maybe it's a better word, a better word is that it's a reaction 
to perceived injustice. One author says this, he says, our anger in essence involves a negative moral judgment that we make. It arises from our judicial sense and functions under the larger dynamic of judgmentalism. In this sense, we may, may call anger a moral emotion, okay? It's a moral emotion in that sense. So here's some examples, okay? I become angry because X, Y, or Z ought or ought not to be the case, okay? My wife ought not to have made that meal again that I don't like. And so I kind of sit there with kind of a smirk on my face as I'm eating it, right? Or my kids ought to have cleaned their room more promptly when, I'm, when I ask them to. Or my Airbnb ought to have had soap for the dishwasher so that I didn't have to do all the dishes by hand. I'm not speaking from personal experience or anything. But sometimes those things, those, that sense of justice or injustice is actually right, right? Like people were uh, enraged and they were upset and they were angry in the 40s, 50s, and 60s when people of color were not treated equally, okay? And so there's actually a, a healthy, uh, anger can be a healthy response to injustice. But because of the infection of sin in our hearts, it's most often not, it's most often sinful. As um, James says, he says, the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Because our anger is usually seated in selfishness, in our desires. So let me, let me just talk for a minute about um, the origins of anger. And here's the first mention of anger in Scripture. And it comes immediately after what we call the fall. So now sin has made its way, the power of sin has made its way into humanity and is ruling over the hearts of men and women. And um, we read the story of Cain and Abel. How many remember that Bible story? You saw the felt guys and uh, Cain's got the stinky basket of like, it's got the green ooze coming from it and Abel's got like the nice fat lamb. Well, we know that what seem, the text seems to indicate is that Cain's offering was not half-hearted because it describes Abel being very intentional about bringing something special to the Lord. And it says that the Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering, but he did not look with favor and approval upon Cain's offering. And Genesis 4 tells us this. It says, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So his anger, his perceived injustice, and it begins to grow and fester into, to, in him until it becomes a jealous, murderous rage. And he actually slays his brother in the field, and he speaks angrily towards God. And so here's what this story tells us. And then God says to Cain, before he kills his brother, he says, sin is crouching at your door, and you must learn to rule over it. Okay? So it's a power. So here's what this story tells us, though. It tells us that our judicial sense while in itself is a good thing from God, can be perverted due to the sin in our hearts, okay? And it becomes a self-centered uh, agenda when that happens. But here's, another, here's a big principle here, and that is that anger is always a heart issue. Anger is always rooted in something going on in our hearts. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And the rest of the biblical story is full of stories and characters who do incredibly destructive and violent things and foolish things because of desires in their hearts that lead them to be angry, right? Saul throwing spears and trying to kill David out of jealousy. Moses striking the rock instead of speaking to it. The anger of the Pharisees at Jesus in all of his purity and righteousness. Now, there's... 
a couple of manifestations that we could um, talk about specifically. There's a whole bunch of them, but I want to talk about a couple. In uh, one is anger against God, and then the other one is anger against others. And we could also talk about anger against ourselves, but for the sake of time, we're not going to do all three of those today. But I want to talk for a minute about anger against God. Now, I don't ask for a show of hands, but I bet if everybody was honest, they would admit that at some point they felt some kind of anger towards God, right? Because he's in charge, he's running the world, and it's ultimately in his hands. So when X, Y, or Z bad thing happen, ultimately the buck stops with him and it's his fault, right? And we think that way, right? Why did God allow me to be hurt this way by other people? Why did God uh, not heal me? Why did God not uh, deliver me from this situation where my enemies were against me? Why is God not providing financially for me in this situation where I need him? Why don't I feel God's presence? And sometimes our reaction is strong, visceral anger towards God. But the root belief under anger towards God, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when uh, Satan was uh, talking to Eve and he convinced her. He says, did God really say, like, are you sure? Like, God doesn't want you to do that because he doesn't have your best in mind. And so it goes back to the root lie that God is not good. At least he's not good towards me, right? He's not good and benevolent, maybe towards other people, but not towards me. So I'm suffering because of it. And anger is rooted in that lie. And the Bible advises us to not agree with that lie from the enemy, right? And sometimes it's a very strong emotional reality that's pressing upon you to believe that God is not good or benevolent towards you. Because the, angry, the enemy loves to get people to feel angry towards God because then you begin to justify sinning against God, right? You believe, oh, you know what, Lord, I need a break from you. And so I'm going to do this. And I'm going to get with this crowd or I'm going to indulge in this because I deserve it because I'm mad at you. And, and sometimes, you know, people are like, you know, I'm just in a season. I'm just I just not really like feeling great about the Lord right now. And it's kind of like they're almost like boasting about their lack of like holy fear of the Lord. You know, you know, I've been in this season for like three years. God's been, you know, dealing with it with me, but I'm not. It's like, really? Are you like boasting that you have no fear of God? Right? But that, that, that lack of fear of the Lord, that lack of honor for the Lord is rooted in a belief in a lie. Right? And the Lord wants to overcome that and uproot that lie from our, our, our hearts. The Bible, it tells us over and over again, God wants to bless us. Yes, he wants us to flourish in, in health. He wants our needs to be met. But it also shows us that God often allows suffering to strengthen us, to build our character, and to deepen our trust in him. Right? So whether or not God relieves my suffering, or he does... The Bible tells me that he's a God who, that suffering is never wasted, right? There's always a redemptive aspect to suffering, even when it's not relieved. And so there's really no reason to be angry at God. There's really just every reason to get a new perspective on my situation, okay? And the cross of Jesus is really the ultimate revelation of that fact, isn't it? Like there's no suffering that's not redemptive. And that's because the ultimate act of suffering in history 2,000 years ago was redemptive, right? And Jesus, you know, it's okay to lament because Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? He was pleading with the Father, there's another way. So it's not sinful to lament and process with God and share the Lord your, your emotions and your, your frustrations, your fears, your anger, but don't let your heart become hardened against him so that you are led into the deceitfulness of sin. 
There's a story um, in, a, in a, one of the novels that Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote called um, a day, a One Day in the Life of Ivan uh, Denisovich. And Ivan, the, who's the protagonist of the book, he's in prison in a, in a Soviet prison camp with another guy, um, his friend Alyosha, who's a Christian. And Ivan's not a Christian. And uh, Ivan is questioning Alyosha. And he's like, how can you cling to a God that leaves you high and dry like this, like, like stuck in prison with no food, with abuse from guards? Like, how can you believe in a God like that? And he challenges his, him. He says, I, I challenge you to pray to your God to miraculously provide food, to relieve some of our suffering. And Alyosha responds to him. And instead of um, agreeing with him and asking God for food, Alyosha tells Ivan that they must pray quote, that the Lord Jesus should remove the scum of anger from our hearts. Isn't that powerful? Like in the face of suffering to defy it by saying, I'm not even going to ask right now for relief from suffering. I'm going to pray that the Lord deals with the root in my heart of anger. Powerful. And some of us need to pray that kind of prayer. Lord, heal the cleanse my heart of the scum of anger. It's like a dirty thing that's just staining there and it keeps leading to reactions and behavior and thoughts and attitudes and uh, things that are just unhealthy and destructive in my relationship with you. And this, the second manifestation of anger, so there's anger against God, but there's also anger against others. And this is probably what most of us experience on a, on a fairly regular basis. Now, some of you right now, you're thinking, no, I don't really have a problem with anger. I'm not the type to fly off the handle and lay on my horn or punch holes in the drywall or kick the dog or scream at the kids or whatever. Now, some of you are saying that, but the thing is, is that anger is not just, there's not just hot anger, right? That's the yelling and screaming and cussing and honking and all of that stuff or the flying into a rage. There's also cold anger. And that is the silent treatment kind of anger. That's the cold, icy resentment, contempt, stonewalling somebody that you're not just not going to talk to. You're going to stare at the wall when they talk to you because they didn't meet your needs and your desires. Right. And that is a kind of a little bit more of a subtle and perhaps even more destructive because folks who generally experience anger in that kind of icy, cold way are probably more likely to kind of bury it. And it festers up in you physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and can cause just as many problems as the person who rages and, and punches things and screams and yells at the top of their, their lungs. But we react with other, to other people with anger because we have filled our minds with rationalizations about our right to demand justice. We fill our minds with rationalizations about our right to carry offense against God and against others, and sometimes even against ourselves, right? We rash My anger is, it is righteous because I can rationalize it. True wrong was done to me. But a Christian who holds on to offense and who has a demand for justice to be done in their life is a person who has forgotten the cost that Jesus paid to forgive them of all their offenses. You see how the gospel speaks into, into every part of human life? If I'm a person who's got anger and resentment in my heart, whether it's hot anger or cold anger towards others, or I'm quick to get angry with people, I forget that the Lord extended mercy to me when he had every right to only unleash all of his wrath against me. And as Christians, we're called, we are called to forgive our enemies and sometimes your enemy in the moment is like your own kids or your own spouse or your best friend 
We're called to forgive our enemies, to refuse to retaliate, because we trust that all justice is in God's hands. We trust that every offense that has been committed against us, whether it's about your kids disobeying you or your wife saying something uh, bad to you or somebody at work gossiping about you behind your back or somebody who fires you from a job because of incompetence, whatever offense has been committed against you has already been paid for by Jesus. Your offenses and their offenses. And so a Christian cannot hold on to offense and anger and resentment and bitterness towards other people because Jesus has already paid for it. And you're like saying, no, it's not paid for yet. I'm gonna get mine. It's not paid for until I get justice. When the Lord has already given his life to pay for it. And whether or not I can truly move past my anger towards other people and forgive them, someone who's deeply wronged me says everything about my belief that God is good and just that he will sort everything out. And there are things that are, that are truly worth being angry and indignant about, right? A violence against uh, children, uh, abuse against children, a, a, a domestic abuse, there are things that are racism, there's things that are worth being angry about. In the world, abortion, you should be angry about that. But what you do with that anger uh, will determine whether or not it's righteous, right? If you bring it before the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, that you will deal with this, that you will bring justice to the oppressor, in the end, that you actually forgive the person who sinned against me and I can let go of it and walk in freedom. Now, maybe some of you, um, you struggle with anger on kind of a regular basis and that's kind of one of the strongholds in, in your life. And maybe you feel defeated and so I want to encourage you with how the gospel speaks into anger, how it speaks to the roots of anger. And I want, to, uh, I want to argue that the gospel enables victory over anger in two ways. In two ways. One is this. Jesus, and this, this applies to any sin that anybody is dealing with, any stronghold in their life, any attitude, any habit, any behavior, anything that is uh, sinful in your life, this applies to anything, not just anger. But the first thing is this. Jesus' death was a full payment for all of your sinful anger past, present, and future. Every fit of rage that you've had, every icy moment of resentment or hour or day or week of resentment that you've held in your heart, the reality is, is that it's been paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And the reason that it's important to realize that and to think about that when addressing anger, because if you try to work from the foundation of your willpower, that you need to kind of secure God's blessing and acceptance of you, you will fail. You won't get at the roots. You might kind of cut off the things that are growing above the surface, but they will just keep regrowing. But real repentance has to be rooted in the kindness and love of God. So when you are addressing a stronghold like anger in your life, you do it as somebody who has already been accepted by God because of the gospel. God's wrath is not resting on you anymore. And so he can walk with you and enable you to, to uproot the, the issue of anger in your life. Paul writes us, let me just remind us of these words. He, Jesus, became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that, that's already what you are. That's your identity is righteous, right? When you have anger in your life or any other sin, you're dealing with things that are hanging around that need to be uprooted. But in God's eyes, you're blameless and righteous because of what Jesus has done. You've already been adopted. 
This is just something that I cannot hammer enough when it comes to anything we're dealing with in our lives, whether it's anger or lust or pride or lying or spiritual listlessness and laziness, any of those things, when we realize, have a realization, I need to repent of this and turn from it, it's so our, the default of our human heart is to think, I'm far from God, I'm not pleasing to him, and therefore I need to make everything right. Right? That I'm not, I'm not accepted. I need to get back into God's good graces. You hear people talking about, I got to get right with God. Well, there's something to that, right? Mending brokenness in the relationship. But by the blood of Jesus, you're already fully accepted. No one can pluck you out of his hand. And repentance looks like this with anger. It looks like coming to him, Jesus, over and over and over again right? That's where it starts. Now, you might think, I have tried to deal with anger, and I just don't know what it is. I've had 10 people have prayed me to be delivered from the demon of anger, and it just is not working. I don't know what it is, but real repentance will start with you quickly coming to Jesus every time you cave into that fit of rage or that, mo or that, that resentment against your spouse or that person at work. It's coming right to Jesus. As soon as the Holy Spirit goes, ding, 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 I'm putting my finger on this, you're falling into it again. You're trying to take justice into your hands because your little comfortable life is getting disrupted by someone. Sin, bring it to Jesus because he's there with open arms. And this is what I'm learning. And this is, I learned, learned, learned this on Monday in St. Petersburg. The quicker I am, to humble myself and admit to God and to others that I've become sinfully angry, the more effectively anger is uprooted from my heart. It's not by my willpower and saying, I will not get angry today. I will not. Lord, I'm not going to get angry today. It's that when I do fall into anger, and I'm not saying I'm a defeatist, like I'm just going to get angry, I might as well give in. But when and if, I, if and when I do, I run right to him and say, Lord, I have been angry again. And it's sinful. It's not producing your righteousness. And I need you to uproot it from my heart. And I need to go to the person or the people or whoever, if, if I need to go to somebody other than God, and be humble and admit it. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He will lift you up. It starts with humility. Here's the second way that the gospel helps us overcome anger. The gospel gives us grace to overcome sin. The gospel is not just a, you know, a get out of hell free card that I believe in Jesus and I say the prayer. Therefore, when I die, I'm going to go to a nice place. The gospel enables you to live a righteous life in this life. It is clear and everything that I said was true about you being fully accepted and righteous in God's eyes. But the Lord actually has expectations that the righteous robe that he has wrapped around you, that that righteousness and that purity of Jesus would manifest in your daily life so that it looks like this. Anger is getting progressively uprooted from my heart. Lust is getting pushed out of my life. The stronghold of fear that keeps me from sharing the gospel, it's getting uprooted from my life because I'm hearing the gospel spoken over me again. Jesus died not just to forgive your sins, but to cleanse you and make you a dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And so, hallelujah, you, you're not without access to victory because the very one who breathed creation into existence lives inside of you. Paul said this, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, how do you do that? Easier said than done, right? If I just get out of bed every morning and I roll out of bed, dear God, help me have a good day, bye-bye. And I go on and then I go, thank you God for this day at the end of the day, and that's it. You see, 
this, the, the Holy Spirit's presence and power and purity are available to us always, but to see that presence, power, and uh, purity manifest in your life involves something, and that is communion with him. Communion with him. Because you can believe both of those things that I said about the gospel to be true. You can believe it intellectually. You can say, I'm excited about that, what he just said, because it's true, and I think I'm going to get some freedom. You can believe those things, but to experience them, you need to meet with Jesus often. And you need to linger in his presence, because Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. And if you want to get the gospel into you, taking root in your life and uprooting the stuff that's hindering and messing up your relationship with God and others, you need to get with Jesus because his real and living presence longs to meet with you. His real and living presence longs to meet with you. Jesus said this. I was reminded uh, this morning the Lord uh, brought me to John 15. And uh, Jesus said this. I just want to read it to you. We've, we've, we, many of, probably multiple people in this room, it's their favorite chapter in the Bible. I love John 15. But let me just remind us of these words from Jesus about this. Following Jesus is, is first and foremost always about staying close to Jesus. It's easier to develop a checklist of to-dos. Here's my discipleship to-do list that I have to do. You can actually do that and not be close to Jesus. It's so much easier, but that's actually legalism, not gospel. Gospel is I'm close to the one who saved me. I commune with him. I am desperate to be in his presence because I know that it needs to guide the course of my day. I need to know that I need to get back into his presence throughout the day when I can, when I can steal away. I need to live in the spirit of prayer. But Jesus said this in, to his disciples. He said, remain in me as I also remain in you. That's, a, that's the language of communion. Okay? That's like a husband and wife do that throughout all of marriage. They remain in each other. They, it mean, the remain or abide means to dwell somewhere permanently. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And I would, I would say that Jesus would also say, neither can you uproot rotten fruit unless you abide in me unless you remain in me. And so this is, really, this is really the key right here. Okay? This is the key to kind of applying because there's the truth of the gospel that's been, that's been accomplished, but then there's getting it into my life experientially, knowing that it is applied to me and seeing the fruit of it in my life. Right? Like seeing anger getting uprooted from my life, seeing myself become more conscious of when I'm getting angry and taking it to the Holy Spirit, seeing myself become a more gentle and lowly person like Jesus. Here's the key to getting it applied to yourself. It's simply this. It's to be with Jesus. It's, it's, it's making the sacrifice of getting up. Jesus woke before the sun rose. And I know this has been a, a staple in my life. This has been a lifeline for me. I shouldn't say a staple. It's like a survival. It's like my life preserver is that I wake up before the sun rises daily to be with Jesus. Because I, and I don't say that as a brag. I say that because I know that if I don't, my faith will drown. I know that I will be lost in sin and bondage in every other kind of uh, brokenness and, and wreckage of human life. 
I know that I'll backslide. I know that I'll be tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil and give in. So Jesus is my lifeline. So I set my alarm early and I learn to get into a rhythm of getting up and crying out to him and saying, Lord, you are my life. You love me. You have saved me. I need your presence this morning, even though I don't feel it right now because it's early and I haven't finished a cup of coffee yet. But Lord, I'm going to read the scriptures. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to give you time. I'm going to give you ample time it's because I need to go into this day armed with your spirit, knowing that I'm walking by the spirit and, and filled with your joy and your power. But you also, to, to, to develop a, 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 a healthy communion with the Lord, you have to understand, and especially if you're dealing with sin and repentance in your life and you're like, I need to start taking this before the Lord regularly, you need to be reminded and remind yourself of the character of God. The character of God. Listen to, listen to, what, uh, listen to what one author says in, in a book about Jesus. He says, God isn't like you. Even the most intense of human love is but the faintest echo of heaven's cascading abundance. His heartful thoughts for you outstrip what you can conceive. He intends to restore you into the radiant resplendence for which you were created. And that is dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but on you taking your mess to him. This message is not a what to do about your situation. It's a message of who you need to come to. That is the gospel. The, God, the gospel is not a message of what to do to get out of this situation. The gospel is a message of who do I come to. I come to the one whose arms are always